Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Heath Day. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Badwater. How you doing? Doing pretty good. Looking forward to the civil war that we don't call civil war anymore. It's the platy is uh, what I and that name decided. sucks. Let me just put that out there. That sucks. I refuse to say the p word. Uh, I mean, <laughs> look, man, it makes more sense than the civil war, given that we don't actually fight each other. Um, uh, I have always sort of enjoyed rivalries that don't have a good name because it it speaks to the like just inquit hate you know like the the inability to even mm-hmm. articulate like how much you hate the person because you're just done with like guttural grunts and howls uh well, and just Michigan. like just like tripping over your tongue to even tell people why it is you hate this other team or communicates <laughs> better than anything else that you hate that other team um so like i kind of dig that it has a stupid name or a name that we're not allowed to say or you know whatever uh, yeah. Like it's sort of, if anything, just as the mystique. Um, uh, however, uh, we will talk about that game a little later in the podcast. But for now, I want to talk about what you've been covering um, just uh, tremendously for the website. And as far as I'm aware, you are the number one Oregon volleyball coverage uh, in the universe. Um, uh, uh, you know, eat your heart out, Oregonian, and Rob Mosley and everybody else uh, are f- the foremost expert on Oregon women's volleyball. Is here with us tonight on the podcast. Uh, what have you been seeing out of this team lately? Well, um, what I've been watching this year has been kind of how this team has struck me the same as the that really great 2012 team that went to the mm-hmm. finals and, and yet how it's uh, struck me differently. Also, um, if you remember that 2012 team, they, they just rolled over everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they had 22 wins um, in the regular season and 16 of those were sweeps. Mm. They only lost four times um, and they were only swept once by Stanford who uh, ironically is the uh, the uh, a team that we swept uh, uh, yeah year. arguably Oregon's most impressive uh, match win of this entire season because they're you know I think they were ranked number five at the time and uh, and, and yeah Oregon swept them and then um, you know maybe I should yeah, not- and, and Stanford hasn't had a drop-off at all. Um, I mean, they're they're still likely to win uh, the Pac-12, so that, that's it's still a good win against a really good team. Um, and maybe I should knock on wood when I say this, but Oregon has swept ten opponents this year and has never been swept. Um, in fact, you know they've only lost, uh, you know, what is it, five uh, matches. 
and uh and i believe even only two of them were uh were one and three losses you know the rest of them were two and three losses um which you know like they took everybody to the wire including you know a couple of matches in which they were without you know arguably their best player would you say yeah yeah maybe Uh, most essential player maybe a better way to put it yeah uh certainly hannah pukas um plays a vital role in passing and, and how the ball is distributed and is, uh, you know, her absence was, was felt, but fortunately, you know, that was the middle of the season. And what I see developing the past few weekends, especially the past couple of weekends is, uh, the resiliency and character of this team where they can stumble and, Yet, do uh, you know, come back with a reverse sweep against Colorado a couple of weekends ago? Uh, they came back with a reverse sweep against USC. When you say reverse sweep, you mean they went down the first two sets, but yeah, then came went back down the first won two the sets, three. Yeah, yeah, and and won the rest of the way. Um, and, yeah, and I mean USC was one of the few teams that beat Oregon in conference play. Um, in Los Angeles, and they got their revenge uh, on Sunday um, uh, here in Eugene. Yeah, and it's um, yeah, was that the, USC? I'm sorry, real quick the the USC loss in Los Angeles was Pukas out for that game too. Yes. Okay. So I mean, it was the yeah. three. Yeah, it was it was for um, both those weekends. Um, we lost the game against USC, even though we were competitive. And then, um, then Oregon they, you know, they put it beat, together against UCLA. Yeah. And that was without Pucas too. Those yes. were the four. It was, it was four matches over two weekends, the two, yes. the, the Washington swing and then the Los Angeles swing. And they went three and one in those, um, or excuse me, one and three in those four matches all without Pucas. Um, but one of them and was both one. trips. Yeah, both road trips and one of them was a win. They and none of them were sweeps. Uh, and then they've got Pucas back, and they haven't. I mean, they haven't lost since, or at least not a, not a match. You know, they, you know, and in fact, have a couple of sweeps, including you know Washington, who's ranked. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that the LA schools aren't ranked. Um, uh, you know, but like, yeah, uh, you know, it, it's been. I, I think I agree with the point that you were making, um, which is that it, it has not been as dominant as that 2012 team. You know, they've had some more problems. They've had to, you know, fight their way through th- some games. As you say, as impressive as a reverse sweep is in which they win the final three games, they have to win the final three games because they, right. you know, they lot or, or, or matches, I should say, or sets. Right. There, um, there was some misfiring or misadjustments. Um, that were happening that put you in the hole that yeah, maybe you shouldn't have been in to begin with. Mm-hmm. What do you think that's about? Um, I mean, my opinion think, is just, I think that I, I think I, I the think Pac-12 it, is really good at women's volleyball and there's a it, bunch of teams that probably should be ranked that aren't because I think that, you know, a, a lot, you know, when I look at where the rankings is really dominated by the big 10 by teams that do not look to me as impressive as some of the Pac-12 schools. And I sort of feel like this is, there's a little East coast bias or anti West coast bias, you know, going on. And I think the reason why they're struggling is simply they're playing really good competition. That's underranked. Um, do you think yeah. I'm off base for thinking that? 
no, no. Colorado is one of a, one of those. Uh, Colorado in women's sports, it typically is um, ranks pretty high in in the the sports they they compete in, and volleyball is one of them. Um, uh, you know, Colorado had some really good hitters, and uh, that's something that USC was doing um, early on in their match. And I tried to show a couple of examples of that. Oh, yeah. um, off of that was a really reference. good article. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, but, and I like that you you've you've gone out to the other team's Twitter feed to get clips that are like that are that are positive for the other team because it really does you know contextualize what's going on in the game. Um, you know, it's not just like oh here's the highlight reel of great Oregon stuff. Like it's a you know, you're, you're putting together with, with, you know, real, you know, interesting video clips from both, you know, highlighting both teams to, to show like what competitive matches the ducks are in and then they're winning those matches. Yeah. And with USC and there's a reason why you were down two sets and yeah, they played really flat, uh, the first set and it's because, uh, USC was, you know, hitting those laser sharp, Mm-hmm. Uh, kills in the defenses, and we weren't digging quite as well. And that's that was kind of a theme in the Colorado um, match as well. Is that um, for whatever reason it took Oregon um, a little bit of time and adjustment to warm up um, and get the digs in the later sets that they were just kind of uh, you know bouncing off uh, arms in the first two sets and and um, uh, also it's the nice thing about um, Oregon the, the thing that's to the ducks advantage if they, is that they have so many good hitters and um, Pukas is really good about disguising where she's going to be. Um, sending the ball. It, mm-hmm. it could be in the middle. It could be to uh, Mutiri. It could be to Brooke. It could be uh, a backcourt kill up the middle uh, off of Mimi Collier. And it's really hard to defend against all that when, when the machine's working like it should. Uh, well, there's only two matches left in the regular season. Um, they are playing uh, Wednesday, uh, tomorrow, um, uh, at California. It's actually a pretty rare midweek game. I think this is only one of two Wednesday matches uh, that they'll play all year. Uh, you'll be covering that one first live uh, noon tomorrow um, or today, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, which you probably are. Um and, uh, uh, the, you know, that should be interesting to, to, to follow along with uh, uh, noon Pacific time in the Pac-12 networks. And then they wrap up on Friday um, against uh, Oregon State um, uh, here in Eugene. Um, uh, what are you looking forward to in those games? Well, I'd, I'd just like to see some consistency in that these are uh, a couple teams um, that that the Ducks should be able to uh, handle and do well against. I mean, they've played, as far as the uh, Pac-12 competition goes, they've played um, all the tougher teams now. 
Well, I don't think they played Cal yet. Actually, they, they haven't played Cal this year. The only yeah. time they they're uh, they they play Cal, um, uh, and, and they opened against uh, um, uh, Oregon State. They're kind of, you know it's like they they split the whole thing. Their their opening conference match was against Oregon State, and their closing conference match is against Oregon State. Um, yeah, regardless, they, um, California's uh, last in the Pac-12 yeah, standings, and Oregon State's seven and twenty-one. Last, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It should they they should be able to handle both of these, you know, uh, pretty easily. Um, what's what's next for the Ducks? Uh, you know, assuming that they well, regardless, you know, uh, you know, th- this team should be set up for the postseason pretty well. How does the postseason structure work? Um, well, the uh, higher seed they work a lot like um, uh, women's basketball, basketball NIT where your upper seeds um, host the first two rounds. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what was the case with um, the 2012 team. Uh, I had covered the the NCAA tournament round that played in uh, here in Eugene and I expect uh, I fully expect that the ducks are going to be rated high enough to, you know, host their own opening round. So that, that's something to look at. Uh, as I say, I don't expect the, the Ducks to lose the next two games. And you know, we can l- be looking forward to uh, some tournament action here in Eugene before they move on. Uh, yeah, the, the tournament runs during December, right? Um, well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, you know, there, I believe Oregon's ranked in the top 10, um, you know, which should, you know, uh, assuming that they, they get past two, um, probably overmatched opponents, you know, they should, they should definitely retain a top 10, you know, ranking and, and, and be able to host. And so that's, you know, more women's volleyball that you get to see in Eugene, which is, uh, you know, excellent. You should definitely go cheer on the ducks, uh, on Friday. Um, all right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk about, uh, football's game against, uh, Utah. Uh, so Badwater, you, uh, wrote up the recap of Oregon's game against Utah. What stood out to you? Um, I, uh, uh, I was pretty astonished at, uh, Bo Nix's resiliency. I mean, you, you can't have watched the game and not come away with just being super impressed with how he gutted through some obvious ankle injury and mm-hmm. you know, pulled out a win strictly on his arm. Cause he didn't have much in the way of mobility. He did move around some, but he obviously wasn't the running threat that uh, he might've been otherwise. And still it's a, uh, you know, we saw a good command uh, of the offense against a really good defense and yeah, we pulled out the win. And yeah, it, uh, I mean, Utah completely shut down. Well, not completely shut down our running game, but they limited our running game and basically forced Knicks to uh, prevail through passing. Yeah, they, um, you know, Oregon still wound up being relatively efficient in the run game. Um, but like, there were, 
there were situations in this game, like there was a third and three, there's a, there's two others where I think Oregon normally would have run the ball and Utah knew that they wanted to run the ball. And even though Utah wasn't really stacking the box in this game, that was sort of a misconception that I saw online when I came up for air after doing film study was like, oh, well, of course, Oregon didn't run. Utah was stacking the box. I was like, no, they really weren't. They really were not uh, overloading the box at all. They were playing pretty much their normal box situation, which is they have a a front six because they play nickel defense. And then if you have a tight end in, which Oregon usually did when they wanted to run the wall, uh, then they'd bring in a box safety. And then, so that's seven versus six, but then usually the way that Oregon deals with it when they have a healthy quarterback is they read the seventh defender. They make him honor the quarterback's, um, ability to run. And now you've got six blockers versus six, um, defenders, you know, Oregon's really good at blocking. So they just block all those guys and the running back gets to get 10 yards. Um, but in this game, because Knicks was no threat to run and Utah knew that, um, you know, they were just immediate, you know, so I try, I put a couple of clips in my article that went up this morning, um, of like, look, you can see very clearly that this would, if, if Knicks were uh, able to run, that this would have been like a huge run for him because he would have kept it against that, that unblocked defender, because the unblocked defender was crashing on the back and he would have normally, um, you know, kept the ball and run, you know, for a big game, but he couldn't do that. He had to hand the ball off. And then that unblocked defender goes and, 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 you know, gets to be un you know, uh, unimpeded in, in getting to the running back. And then how did Oregon deal with that? Well, a couple of times they just took, you know, tackles. Um, a couple of times they ran through, you know, the guy to get an efficiency gain, but not an explosive one. Cause the dude's draped on his back. He's not going to get more than three yards and convert the third and three. A couple of times they ran around the guy cause Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington are really good running backs. Um, but like, otherwise just the running game was not, you know, really there, even though you Utah's not a great rush defense and Oregon is really good rushing offense. Like those are only true when the, you know, in the structure of Oregon's rush defense, when the quarterback is capable of running the ball, um, it will be interesting going forward to see what Nix's health is like and what, you know, the strategy is going to be running the game. There was an interesting theory that I saw that basically Kenny Dillingham, Oregon's offensive coordinator, didn't know that Nix was going to be the quarterback in this game. Like, and so he designed a, an offensive game plan, um, assuming that Ty Thompson was going to be the quarterback who would have been a threat to run. And that's why the run structure didn't change. Um, but then Nix is like, no, I'm actually good to go. You can put me in. And then Dillingham doesn't have time to write a new game plan. So it's like, well, that's going to mean that a running attack is not going to make any sense. But like, whatever, you're a great passer and and we'll get some stuff open for you. And that was, you know, back to your point about like him gutting his way you know, through this win is that that's definitely the difference in the game is that Oregon, Oregon's defense understood Utah's offense and and did what other teams, frankly, other defenses should have been shutting Utah down as effectively as Oregon shut Utah down. And the fact that they weren't really speaks to how terrible defenses are in the Pac-12, not just the talent, but I really feel like the defensive coordinator brain trust in the Pac-12 is very poor. And uh, for years, I have been watching this Utah offense where I'm like, you only are capable of throwing it to two guys. 
your blocking's not that great. Your quarterback has lock on syndrome and happy feet. Like you should be shutting your, the way that they run the ball is super predictable based on where they line up the tight end, whether the quarterback is under center or, um, or in the shotgun. Like this is an extremely predictable offense. And the fact that other defensive coordinators have not been predicting it and shutting it down the way that Oregon did really, I, I, it, it's like, I want to praise Oregon here. Cause like, of course I do. But really, more than anything else, I want to just shit on <laughs> on <laughs> other Pac-12 defensive coordinators because they should have been doing this all along. It's so like this. What's so like painful about doing film study on Utah is just like this is not. It's not that it's not a good offense, and it's not that they don't have good players because it is a good offense, and they do have good players. And Cam Rising is, you know, a really um, adroit quarterback, and he really bails them out of a lot of problems. But like, it's not a clever offense. It's pretty much the opposite of a clever offense, whatever that is. And the fact that other Pac-12 defensive coordinators that was were not able to outsmart Andy Ludwig is like. I don't know. Are they eating crayons all week? Like, I don't know what they're doing in failing to like, especially USC. The fact that USC gave 43 points to this offense is like Alex Grin should have been fired on the spot. Like he's so bad. Um, anyway, um, you know, and I don't want to take anything away from Oregon's defense because they did the way they needed to do, but like Bennett Williams, for example, who got two picks, like, Oregon sort of engineered both of those. Well, they engineered the second one. The first one was a deflection, but frankly, the deflections are not that surprising. It is very predictable where the throw is going to be and defensive linemen ought to know when to get their hands up. And the fact that Oregon got two, Keon Weir Hudson got one and Jordan Riley got another and both of them turned into picks is like that, that it was a surprise, but it wasn't a surprise. If you know what I mean? Like it was a surprise because it hadn't happened. It was not a surprise in that it should have been happening a lot more. Yeah, and the defense um, was well coached for Utah's offense. They they obviously had Rising's number, mm-hmm. so um, you know, it's it, like like you say, if if in fact he's predictable and you know doesn't get on a, a lucky tear, then you know a, a defense is going to be at its best when it can predict what's coming I mean, out yeah and i mean and now flip that around like and which is why i started talking about in the middle of talking about how great bo nicks was in this game i switched over and, and just started dumping on utah but the reason that i did that is because this game really presented a, a, a like a, a very stark contrast between court a quarterbacks and b offensive coordinators and where utah you have a a predictable offense that gives stuff away based on the formation and um, and, and sort of a talent level so that they only have a couple of guys to throw to and a quarterback who like, it's easy to figure out who he wants to throw to and sort of program that, you know, like set those up, set, set him up to fail is basically the way that I would describe Oregon's defense of Utah's passing game. In fact, I put a couple of clips in my article of like, there's a better throw for rising to make than the one that he does, but he's going to make that throw because because they understood his tendencies and his yeah, tunnel vision. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, crayon eating is how I would describe the rest of the Pac-12 defensive coordinators that weren't able to do that. Cause I mean, I look, man, I wrote an article in which I'm pointing all this stuff out. And like, if I can notice these patterns and I'm 
I'm paid beer money to do this on my spare time. And I'm an idiot and an amateur. Like it's been five years since I've even touched a football. Like if I can figure this stuff out, what the hell are people who are being paid six, seven figures to figure this stuff out doing, you know, like I feel like they're defrauding the universities that they're working for if they couldn't figure this stuff out. Um, But anyway, what a contrast where you have a predictable quarterback and a predictable offense. And then you have on the other side of the ball, a quarterback who's operating on one wheel, an offensive coordinator who didn't know that that quarterback was going to be playing and probably was designing a, um, an offense for a different quarterback against what is statistically, you know, one of the best defenses in the country. And yeah, the scoreboard doesn't show it because they were, you know, kind of playing slow and they were playing with one hand tied behind their back, but they like, they moved the ball against Utah and they were hitting explosive plays and Utah was not hitting explosive plays. Utah was absolutely shut down in terms of explosive plays. Their longest play of the game was 18 yards. They only had three plays that were even over 15 yards. That's it. You know, it was short, short, short. It was, you know, Oregon's defensive strategy was make them march the field and bet that they'll make mistakes. And boy, did they make some mistakes. Um, Whereas Oregon was operating both an efficiency offense and an explosive offense. And you know why they were operating an explosive offense? It wasn't because in the run game, they weren't hitting explosive runs for the reasons that we've said, you know, because Knicks couldn't run the ball. It meant that, you know, running backs had to like run through situations you know in which they can do that on an efficiency basis but they're not going to get explosive plays they had Oregon was getting explosive plays because Bo Nix was connecting and the reason that he was connecting was a Kenny Dillingham had a good game plan for you know and b Oregon had has and b Bo Nix is not tied to only throwing to one or two guys he is yeah. able to throw also, everybody on a team which has a t- you know talent across the board. He's got five different great wide receivers to throw to. He's got four different great t- tight ends to throw to. He's got three different great running backs to throw to, and he does not have tunnel vision. You know that's what you know to finally get back to what you were saying, which is all praise to Bo Nix, which he deserves. The reason that he deserves that praise, and it should have been very clear in this game because the other quarterback provided such a great contrast to it, is that. Bo Nix doesn't have tunnel vision. Bo Nix doesn't only want to throw the ball to a couple of guys. Defenses can't shut Bo Nix down by shutting down two guys and then forcing him to be uncomfortable because you can't make Bo Nix uncomfortable. God couldn't make him uncomfortable by taking one of his legs away. You you sure as hell defensive coordinator ain't going to do it. He has real world SEC quarterback experience. Three years of it. and, And it shows. Yeah, it does he always uh, get a pass off? No. Uh, uh, is he pressured? Yeah. And he doesn't hold on to the ball. No, that's also true. He'll, he'll get, he, he did a, a couple of really quick throws that were obviously, you know, to uh, end the play rather than, you know, extend it into an error or mm-hmm. take a hit. Also, his mobility, you mentioned this, but it deserves some underlining. Like, he wasn't a statue in the pocket. There's a couple of plays in which, you know, the pressure is sort of getting there, and he, like, he he evades it, you know, enough to either get rid of the ball or or, or to, to make a little throw. Now, he's not, you know, the, the scramble wasn't there. In fact, I put one of the clips I put in my article was like, look, you can see it. You can see where the right. back door is for him to, like, and if he were at full go that he probably would have scrambled here for a first down, but instead he has to throw the ball away, but still throwing the ball away, like making that move in the pocket and then throwing the ball away is still better than taking a sack, which is, you know, what he avoided doing. So like, it's not like he's, 
it's not like he's a, a statue. It's not like he's a, you know, completely immobile. Um, he just, you know, you're not going to trust, you know, and, and that was probably deliberate, you know, it, it was probably a deliberate decision to try to keep, preserve his health for the upcoming game, um, or games, um, uh, you know, and mission accomplished. Like they not only got the win, but they did it without any damage, any further damage to his ankle and, you know, and, and inhibition to his recovery time. Um, you know, I don't know what the exactly the injury is and I don't know what his recovery window is, you know, for this, but like playing this game was no different than if he didn't play this game. I guess I'd put it that way. Like Mm -hmm. he's, you know, he could have played golf this weekend or he could have just laid on the couch, you know, and and walked back and forth to the refrigerator and the toilet this weekend. And he would have put as much strain on his ankle as he did playing this game, (laughs) you know, that's how good Oregon's offensive line is and how good the game plan was, um, that, that like he effectively put zero net, you know, versus not playing, uh, strain on his ankle. And so he's like, all the options for recovery are still open to him, which great. Yeah. And not feeling like he needs to, um, single-handedly win the game the way that cam rising needed to. And yeah. And throw that, uh, the ball such that, you know, immediately would have left the hand. That was the wrong thing to do. I mean, he did have a couple of those, right? He threw that dumb, yeah. uh, you know, um, you know, and his accuracy yeah, he, was uh, not perfect, but his accuracy is still yeah. pretty good. Like considering yeah. that his load foot, like that's, he has to mm-hmm. like his plant foot is his left leg. Cause he's right-handed quarterback. And really if your left leg is injured as a right-handed quarterback, you really are in trouble. Your yeah. right foot is where you load up your power. Um, if you're a right-handed quarterback, but if you have really good arm strength and you can throw with your trunk alone, um, then that doesn't affect you as much. And again, back to the all praise to Bo Nix, um, uh, line of thinking like, yeah, his arm strength is really good. He can throw with his trunk alone. He does not need to load up all of his power onto his, um, his right leg. Uh, in order to do that. And in fact, he hit several long passes um, accurately uh, due to that fact, because he's mm-hmm. got really good arm talent. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you um, saw his post-practice interview today. Um, he said that he, that it was day to day last week. You know, he's, he's been through it with broken ankles and, and yeah, that kind of stuff. Before. Yeah, he missed he missed part of a season at Auburn um, due to that. Right. He he knows his body and he knows um, what's working and what should be working and you know what to um, not really push. But um, he did say this morning, that Tuesday morning, that um, his ankle at this point this Tuesday feels better than it did at this point last Tuesday. Hmm. Uh, well, and good to know. Um, I, I mean, the, uh, that's that, I mean, really more than even the win, because like, as soon as he got injured, I was sort of, I, I kind of wrote the season off, you know, like it's sort of a Dennis Dixon thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, proof of concept. Like I am willing to buy in with this coaching staff at this point. Like I, they're young and they make mistakes. Um, and they definitely, I think made some mistakes in this game too. Um, 
like, uh, but you know, whatever, uh, the, the, you know, I'm, I, you know, remember last off season or, or back in, you know, January, February, when we were looking at this coaching staff that was getting hired and we're like, let me get this straight. This is a first time head coach with, you know, his defensive coordinator is a guy who got play calling duties taken away from him in 2018 from Nick, by Nick Saban, a bunch of dudes who we'd never heard of, or if we've heard of them, it's because they got fired from jobs because they weren't doing them very well. Uh, like Adrian Clem. Um, and, and like, uh, and, and they looked like they were more recruiters than coaches and everybody was sort of like, you know, clutching their pillows, uh, and, and, and being afraid, you know, for this coaching staff, anybody afraid about this coaching staff at this point, like anybody think that this is not a good coaching staff right now? I don't think so. If somebody does, you know, they're welcome to speak up, but you know, especially, you, I, I suppose we could nitpick about, uh, some of the defensive coaching. Um, yeah, it's, uh, uh, I think that if, if coaching is, is an issue, um, just in, in general terms, if coaching was the issue with, uh, Washington, then it, it looks like they learned some, I mean, things. it wasn't the issue, but coaching right. could have pulled them out of the fire. And instead I think they made some, some strategic mistakes. I think they inherited the, what really the foundational issue is, which is that Oregon doesn't have a pass rush. Um, yes. And so they couldn't like do much in order to stop that, you know, a very pass heavy attack. Um, but like, right. but, and, and they had, uh, they really had more glaring issues um, at cornerback, which, which they addressed. I'd hate to think uh, of how this year would have gone uh, if we didn't have Gonzalez. Right, exactly. And I think they brought Dante Manning along um, pretty well. In fact, I tried to put a clip in my article, um, you know, showing off that like, hey, they put Manning on their best receiver. You know, because by alignment, they wanted um, Gonzalez, you know, at a different spot. And like Manning shut that dude down. He ran him out of bounds and forced the ref to, to throw his hat. Um, mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I, I think, you know, given how worried we were about the cornerback room, they actually shorted that up pretty well. Now, there's nothing really they could have done. You know, they could have gotten an elite pass rusher out of the portal, although the sentence, oh, yeah, just get an elite pass rusher out of the portal should make anybody laugh. Um, yeah. Although they're probably going to try to have to try to do that, um, you know, this season. But now that they have more of a proof of concept, you know, that might be easier to do. Um you know, like they should be even more successful going fishing in the portal, um, you know, this off season or this coming off season than the, the most recent mm-hmm. off season, you know, given that they are, you know, they've, they've established their bona fides at this point. Um, so like, yeah, I, you know, I'm pretty confident about it. And the other thing is that's like, okay, let's, um, let's review some of the, the coaches that Dan Lanning has beat. Uh, he beat Chip Kelly who was hired in 2018. He beat David Shaw, who was hired in 2011. Uh, he beat Kalani Sataki, who was hired in, I think, 2016 or 2015. He beat Jonathan Smith, who was hired in 2018. He beat uh, Kyle Whittingham, who was hired in 2011. He beat, you know, Justin Wilcox, who was hired in 2017. Like, what's the, you know, what what's the average there? Like seven years of dudes on the job for for those six, six guys, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or five guys. Um, like, what are those guys building to if they haven't gotten there in seven years? You wear a first year head coach and not just first year at the job, first year literally ever, uh, you know, coaching is running them out of buildings. Um, right. And, 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 and a first, first year coach with the first year coaching staff. 
Right. It wasn't like what and, and had to assemble a, a lot of key pieces from the portal because dudes were leaving because the previous staff, you know, you know, mm-hmm. left in the cover of darkness. Um, you know, like the you know the coaching job that Lanning has done has been pretty remarkable, and, and against a bunch of dudes, like if I were UCLA, Stanford, BYU, OSU, Utah, or Cal, and I lost to a first year head coach, I, I'd fire him. You know. And frankly, those, you know, Kalen DeBoer at Washington, Lincoln Riley at USC have had similar, you know, those, you know, uh, DeBoer didn't beat UCLA and Riley didn't beat Utah. So I guess Oregon's better than those guys. Um, But, you know, all three even beat David Shaw. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, 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 Oregon has not yet beat um, Jonathan Smith, but assuming that they do, those three head coaches will be three and oh against Jonathan Smith. Yeah. you know, uh, 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 Oregon beat Utah. Um, Washington didn't play him. USC lost to him. Um, all three teams beat Justin Wilcox at Cal. Um, uh, uh, you know, like what are those coaches doing? You know, I, I just spent a little while ago, you know, making fun of the crayon eaters who are defensive coordinators in the PAC 12. Maybe, you know, we should extend that head coaches too. You know, if you haven't gotten your team to where it needs to be, to be the first year head coach, when you're in your five, six, seven, 11, you know, whatever it is, like, what are you, what are you doing? You know, who, who do you have to blame? Well, and we can certainly credit Rob Mullins for, um, a home run coaching hire. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I don't, I, I don't see better. how you could you could top Dan Lanning right now. Like it's only getting better. You know, that's the th- I mean, like, let's let's cross our fingers that they fight off at Arizona State and they keep Kenny Dillingham. Um I know, frankly, I don't think that I, I mean, like, of course I, I'm gonna say this as an Oregon fan, but like Kenny, if you're listening, you're too young. And Arizona State's a dumpster fire. Don't do it, man. Um <laughs> yeah. Like yeah, Dan said it, uh, Lenning said as much, you know, that there, there's a history of uh, success uh, when coaches come to Oregon, and there's also a, a different history when they leave. Yeah, um, but anyway, like, this this is the hardest year that Dan Lenning's going to have, right? This is his training wheels year. This is the unproven staff. This is having to assemble a team slapdash through the transfer portal. Like, it only gets better from here. Um, or it only gets easier anyway. I can't guarantee results or anything. But, like, you know, ain't, ain't, ain't playing Georgia anytime soon. You know, um you know, Washington beat him. Washington's going to lose a bunch of talent. And Kalen DeBoer hasn't demonstrated that he can recruit. That team's probably headed off a cliff. Um, you know, they, they got over the, the Utah hurdle. Utah's going to lose a lot of their team next year. I'm not sure that that team's going to be a threat anytime soon. Cal's not a threat. You know, Stanford's not a threat. UCLA, this is probably their, you know, best season when they have literally a fifth-year starting quarterback. Um, they're going to lose him, you know. And, and uh, you know, like, where's the threat? Where's the threat in the Pac-12 in 2023? Yeah, well, sure. I'll tell you it's in Los Angeles. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. Riley. But, like, that's it, man. And that's what, you, you know, and, and and that for only one year, you know. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I don't want to undersell um, Oregon's use of the transfer portal. I mean, we talked about that over the uh, summer, how it, it looked like, uh, there were some good pieces, some important uh, puzzle pieces that were being filled. And now 
toward the end of the season, uh, I'd I'd give the coaching staff an A for for what they acquired through the transfer portal. Well, I mean, looking ahead, they're they need to get a quarterback. Um, you know, they they pr- probably should try to get two quarterbacks. Um, and uh, they need they need to bolster the pass rush. The the recruiting at every other spot has been good enough that like the 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 portal needs are not particularly dire you know the, the you know pick up good players because you know you want to pick up good players um um but like they they definitely need to you know bolster the quarterback spot they definitely need to enhance the um the the patch spot which like those are the two hardest positions to, to find good players at. so yeah. like good luck but like um you know the offensive line they're probably going to be losing dudes off the offensive line but like this year has afforded them the opportunity to get a lot of experience for the backups and i'm really pretty happy with the way that the offensive line room is looking um and that's the hardest to build organically so like that was a big sigh of relief um for me and the fact that the staff has like definitely, you know, demonstrated that they know what they're doing, you know, has been a big sigh of relief too, because it probably means, I mean, it hasn't happened yet, but it sets them up to attack the transfer portal to get the guys that they, um, they, they need for 2023. And like winning this game, I think was a big part of it, you know, like demonstrating, you know, this team that pantsed, you know, the last coaching staff twice last year, um, you know, turn around and with a, you know, quarterback with a bum ankle, you know, to beat him anyway, like, yeah, you know, like if any, if there was anybody still out there who was like, oh, I don't know about the staff, you know, fans, commentators, or more importantly, prospective student athletes and transfer portal candidates, like those doubts have got to be gone. Right. Yep. 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 All right. Let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we will uh, talk about the upcoming, uh, uh, platy, uh, your favorite, uh, term. <laughs> All right. I got to travel to the potato salad palace that the half built stadium. Uh, <laughs> what do you think about playing and re- they got it. They, they play a chainsaw sound effect on every third down. So let's just hope that Oregon just always converts on their second downs. Uh, what do you think about this game? Um, well, we're Jonathan, Jonathan Smith has steadily, um, been progressing in the years that he's been a a head coach and it shows like, um, you know, like Chip Kelly, he's, um, a handful of years into being, uh, a head coach. He's got his guys in 2018. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he, for the most part, has his guys in there and is, you know, they're showing some success this year. So um, the the scary thing is that, you know, it's the same scariness as with the Utah game. If, if uh, Knicks can't play or gets injured during the game, then what's going to happen? Uh, yeah, I, you know, it's sort of difficult to write preview pieces about this because like the, the major thing that's going to affect the game is not anything that I am in a position to predict or comment on using film review. Um, sort of like, you know, I'm at best doing background work, um, in writing my article. Um, 
Although I feel like a lot of the stuff that I said about Utah wound up, you know, being stuff that Oregon exploited um, against Utah. So, like, I feel like that'll probably be the case again against Oregon State. You know, I can't provide some useful context in terms of like they had a quarterback switch. Um, the way that their defensive structure has changed a bit with uh, the hiring of Trent Bray, like midseason, they fired their longtime defensive coordinator, Tim Tibisar, and they promoted Trent Bray. And then the interim tag came off of that guy. And, and when Oregon played the platy last year, I was like, this defensive structure is identical. They're not going to get any real bump, you know, from, from, from changing the guy. And that turned out to be exactly the case. And then they actually did by the bowl game, the next game that they played after the platy, they actually had Bray had made um, a, a relatively significant change to wit. Tibisar was running a three down defense, you know, uh, which in some ways actually kind of resembles Oregon's um, um, or no, actually that's not true. It's, it's a three down front with a nose tackle. And then they would play typically um, uh, two OLBs and, um, and two inside linebackers. So it's, you know, a three, four uh, defensive structure with a nose in the middle. But then the problem was their noses just kept in getting injured or transferring out of the program. And Tibisar's response to this was sort of like, he would just pull the nose tackle and put it in nickel and play a two, four, five. And, but then sort of like throw up his hands and be like, what are you expecting me to do? You know, you Jonathan you can't give me a nose tackle and like that my structure depends on it so like you know what the hell and and eventually the response was to fire Tibisar and try to find somebody who could deal with that fact and Bray starting with the bowl game against Utah State which was not a success they lost to Utah State but starting in that game and for the rest of the you know the 22 season, his response was, okay, we don't have a nose tackle. We're not really going to play a nose tackle. I mean, they have a guy who can kind of do it. Isaac Hodgins, um, but they really only bring him in for very specific, like rushing downs, you know, that it's like third and one and the opponent is in like the eye formation kind of stuff. But otherwise they're, they're playing two down linemen who are two, two like senior dudes who I like a lot, Rawls and Sandberg. Um, they're playing an OLB because they've got like four OLBs and like some of them are even actually not half bad. Um, uh, um, but then the, the really interesting thing was that they 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 have one dude, his name is Sioni Lolahea. Um he's number ninety. And Lolahea, um, he is officially listed as a defensive lineman. Um, but he's plays more like a stand-up end. You know, he's a big guy who's like a credible to stop the run, but he's fast enough to also penetrate and play more structurally, he's playing in a way that's indistinguishable from an OLB role, but he's big enough to really be you know, uh hit like a defensive lineman. And he's sort of the key to understanding all of um, Oregon State's, you know, defense. So like there's been a lot of attention paid to Oregon State's defensive, you know, backs because like it looks like they have actually two pretty good corners, which is I'm as surprised as anybody to find that's the case. Um, I'm not wild about their defensive backs. And I sort of think that Kelly and Dillingham is going to attack them up the middle and just sort of leave the cornerbacks alone because that was, you know, remember what we were saying about, you know, the Utah games that like Oregon's big advantages they have, they can throw to anybody. You know, they're not just locked like Washington is into throwing to only two really good wide receivers or, or actually they have more but like they're all sort of clones of each other Oregon doesn't have clones of each other they've got four tight ends and three running backs and a bunch of wide receivers and, and I sort of think that Dillingham is just gonna you know solve that problem by just not throwing against the cornerbacks um the cornerbacks like they might not be as good as they look I don't know Rajon Wright's got a sort of a flag problem but whatever anyway the 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 what I meant to, to, to say is that like all this focus has been on the defensive backs 
but the focus ought to be on the front because the front is actually what Bray is transformed in the, in the structure of the way that they play it. And it's where all their seniors are, you know, like Rawls and Sandberg, um, I, I believe are both seniors. Lola Hay is very experienced. Omar Spates, the inside linebacker is a senior. Um, like, y- yeah, that, you know, they've got like some serious, like, you know, they're not the most like super talented guys in the world, but they've all been playing for like five years. Um, and, and the front is really what, you know, it allows them to stop the run without having to commit too many you know players to the box. And they're getting enough pressure on the quarterback without having to blitz too often or to bring safeties into the box to blitz that like the, the safeties can play back and play against the pass. And that's really why the defense has been successful is because the, the senior leadership or upperclassmen leadership in the defensive front. And they had to actually make a transformation at the defensive front, which was, you know, essential, which is why I thought the Trent Bray actually did a pretty good job, even though I was, I was skeptical of it last year. Um, because if you may re- recall, they fired Tibisar and they played two games against Stanford and ASU, who were two teams that I thought that they had totally packed it in. And Oregon State played better defense against those teams. But I was like, I think that's a mirage. I think that they just played really bad offenses who had packed it in. And and then sure enough, Oregon ran them out of the stadium in the platy. Right. Remember that in 2021, mm-hmm. you know, yep. where where, you know, they won handily and then Oregon State in garbage time. And, you know, there was like fights and stuff, you know, but, but you know, whatever, you know, they effectively destroyed Oregon State defense. And so I was like, haha, told you. So, you know, Bray's no real improvement on Tim Tibisar. But then I have felt like I that my opinion on that question has changed over the 2022 because of the way that he's transformed the way the defensive front works. And so therefore, I think people ought to who are like heaping praise in the defensive backs, you know, as well, they might. But I'm like, I'm telling you, the secret to all of it is really the way that he transformed the defensive front. Um and, and, you know, and good for him. You know, he ought to be a Bryles Award semifinalist. Although I think they, I just talked to, to Travis Johannes at Building the Dam, and he indicated that apparently he's been passed up for that, which is like, that's, what a dumb thing to do. Uh, uh, that that dude's a, a potential Bryles Award winner, or ought to be, in my opinion, for for for, you know, just like what you were saying about Jonathan Smith punching above his weight class on the offense, you know, taking a not super talented offense and making them play better. I think that Trent Bray, you know, took a difficult situation and transformed the defensive front and took advantage of you know the guys that he had um, to, to to play better defense that they have any right to given their talent level. So good for him. Um, you know, I, I think there are lots of ways that that defense can be taken apart, and I'm going to write about them in my article. Um, but uh, it's well, not as it, it's not as you thing. said. As you said time and again, you know, it's it's you can't um, make your defensive scheme work with players that you don't have for it. Yes. So, you know, why are you beating your head against the wall? Just why? Sure. Stay out of the crowds. Uh, yeah. Um, and then on the offensive side of the ball, like they've got a really good running back. It sort of took them a while to figure it out, but they, you know, Damian Martinez is really great running back. I don't think that their offensive line is quite as good. This is that we spent a lot of Travis Johannes and I spent a long time talking about this on the podcast that we recorded before recording this podcast. I was recording back to back podcasts today, but you know, for anybody, actually I recorded three podcasts today. Whoo. Um, we spent a long time talking about it. Like, I don't actually think their offensive line is quite as good as it has been in previous years. I still think it's one of the best offensive lines in the Pac-12. Um, but, like, it doesn't scare me as much as previous iterations of this team. Um, but, but like, Martinez sort of, like, he, he bails them out. 
like I, I'm going to have some clips in my article of like the blocking on this play was terrible, but Martinez gets a touchdown anyway, because he's breaking a bunch of tackles. You know, he's, oh. yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's a real good back. Um, Oregon's going to tackle really well if they want to stop him. Um, but on the other hand, like the, the, you know, the offense has gotten even more uh, absolutely dependent on the run game. You know, they are running like two thirds of the time. They really communicate what the play is going to be based on whether they're in the shotgun or under center, like far more even than Utah did. Um, it's yeah. You know, I spent all that time ragging about how Utah was super predictable. Oregon state's super predictable. Um, they, I, I think they have a better offensive line than Utah. And I think they have a better running back than Utah, but they're also more, even more predictable than Utah is. So like, I think that if Oregon, if Oregon's defensive staff is as um, smart and adaptive and adroit at film study as I think they are, and I think that the performance against Utah indicated that they have a chance to do pretty well against Oregon State's offense. And then it's just a, a question of like, okay, can you find you know some holes in the armor against Oregon State's defense, in which case... It, it, it looks like a favorable environment for Oregon. Um, now, of course, there's lots of ways that that can go wrong. But like it's like I said, it's a very predictable offense. Um, the quarterback cannot really dig them out. Uh, you know, if they if they take a negative play on first or second down, that they're probably going to punt. Um, and then it's just a, a question of like, how real is that defense? Um is it as full spectrum dominant as it, as it might look? I sort of think the answer is no. It's actually, actually the other thing that I spent a lot of time talking with Travis about is like how this is bizarre. Cause we're going into week 13. I've got, you know, 12 weeks, 11 games, 10 of them of against FBS opponents worth of film on this team. I still sort of feel like it's a mystery team. And Travis totally, you know, he's like very enthusiastic about agreeing that he's like, I'm still not really sure about how good this team is. Because like, look, they have three losses. It's the three best teams that they played, right? USC, Washington, and Utah. Um, And like their offense looks like it's been getting better. On the other hand, they've been playing a lot of bad defenses and like teams that have packed it in. So like their last three games were against um, Washington, bad defense, Uh, uh, Arizona State, bad defense that's packed it in Cal, which like who knows what's going on with that team, right? Like they played Colorado, which is, you know, a terrible team. Um, You know, there was a buy in there somewhere, Um, you know, like uh, uh, they played, you know, USC whose defense like they they like the, it's really unfortunate that they didn't play against UCLA because I really would have liked I I really think the matchup against UCLA would have been very instructive but then they didn't play that game um so like uh, you know like and so there's even though I think Oregon State's defense is not a total mirage like I think a lot of their defensive stats their you know raw stats are, are for real I think that there is an element of a mirage to them or at the very least there's definitely an element of uncertainty um because their film just doesn't it's not I I know this is crazy to say but like the film is just not really high quality on this team um well I think one of the most uh, interesting things that I'm going to be looking for is um, what Dillingham has seen in possible cracks in the uh, run defense. And how is he going to exploit that? Well, the rush defense doesn't grade out very well. And that's the other thing that's really, really, really weird about the, um, the Oregon state 
um, defensive numbers is that they grade out at about 56%, which is good, not elite, but good. And in the Pac-12, good is unusual <laughs> against the pass. 56% against the pass, pretty good. Uh, you know, only allowing about 6.5 yards per pass attempt against the pass, which is very good. Um, yeah. On the other hand, against the run, they grade out at less than 45%, um, which is bad. Like a really bad, I'm, it's like standard for the pack 12, but standard for the pack 12 is bad. Um, and, uh, but here's the crazy thing. Uh, uh, opponents have been passing against Oregon state twice as often as they've run. So talk about like eating crayons, man. It's like they got a week, they have a weak rush defense and you're only running a third of the time. Like, what are you doing? Like. Well, passing, of course. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I, it, you know, and part of that is because they played USC and they played Washington and those teams aren't happy unless they're throwing the ball. And they're playing teams where like, you know, th- that are just kind of stink. And if you stink and are losing the game, you start throwing the ball, you know, more often. So, you know, Colorado, Cal, Arizona State. Um, uh, um, but like Utah ran them out of the building and they did it by running the ball. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Washington ran the ball pretty effectively against them. They just didn't want to run very often because of sort of ideological reasons, I guess. And like, I don't know, man, I don't know what Oregon's rush game is going to look like in this game. I I don't know if they're going to try to do a sort of structurally different stuff that doesn't depend on using a running quarterback to keep the defense honest. I don't, I don't really know what they're going to do, but I can tell you that the rushing numbers are very clear. The rush defense numbers indicate that this is team that Oregon State is pretty vulnerable against the run, and yet bizarrely, opponents have not been running against them, um, which probably indicates some crayon eating in the Pac-12. Yeah, well, it, it'll be interesting to see what Dillingham comes up with, but uh, because if he can uh, lean a little bit more on the run um, than has been the case, and keep Nick's out of harm's way, yeah. If it works, why would you do different? Yeah. All right. I think it's a good stopping point. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. Do uh, you have any parting words for wisdom for us, Badwater? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will avoid the P word. Just say good ducks. Yeah. All right. Up little brother. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, I think we can all agree with that. Um, all right. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll catch you on the flip side.